This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to return to a theme that we have not focused on for quite some time on Issues in Perspective, that is gambling and the pernicious nature of gambling. Over the last 20 years, the growth of the gambling industry has been staggering. Increasingly, more and more states are legalizing all forms of gambling. It is now on several Indian reservations, and the respective states are now utterly dependent on revenue of some form or the other of gambling. The gambling industry in the United States is huge. Worldwide, it is enormous. According to a recent issue in the magazine The Economist, the total revenue from gambling worldwide is $335 billion. That percentage total breaks down as follows. From casinos, 31%. Sports betting, 5%. Bingo and other associated games, a little over 5%. Lottery products, almost 30%. Non-casino gaming machines, 21%. Horse racing, a little over 7%. The same magazine in that issue in which these statistics come has this insightful comment, quote, The odds of winning the jackpot in America's richest lottery, Mega Millions, is 1 in 176 million. Euro Millions, a similar lottery option, available to players in nine Western European countries, offers slightly better odds, 1 in 76 million. Roulette players, on average, hit their number once in 36 or 37 attempts. Poker players' chances of being dealt a royal flush are much the same as being struck by lightning. Close that quote. Despite such overwhelming odds, Americans still gamble on an enormous and stunning rate, and each year that rate grows. Furthermore, government at the state levels especially, and even some local governments, are now involved in state-sponsored gambling, and it is a matter of public policy. And as I stated earlier, their budgets are utterly and totally dependent on revenue from state-sponsored gambling operations. Well, if you and I were asked to build a case against gambling, what would we say? How can we as Christians be good citizens and expose the pernicious nature of this growing pastime for Americans? First of all, let me share a few thoughts about gambling as a goal or matter of public policy. It seems to me that immoral means have never led to moral ends. We are no longer skimming the profits from a criminal activity. We are putting the full force of government into the promotion of moral corruption in our society. Quite frankly, gambling promotion has become a key to states balancing their respective budgets. But it is wrong, it seems to me, for this state to exploit the weakness of its citizens just to balance the budget. It is most unfair. It is a painful form of quote, painless taxation, close quote. 
The money is not coming from a few big bookies, but from the pockets of millions of its citizens. The states have become as hooked on gambling as a source of revenue as any compulsive gambler betting the milk money. Gambling feeds a get-rich-quick illusion that debilitates society and thereby causes individual ruin, despair, and suicide. Therefore, gambling corrupts the state and its citizens that both seek a piece of the action. So it's important for us to ask, secondly, how does state-approved gambling impact people's lives? Can we document that impact? Well, I believe we can. First of all, legalized gambling sidetracks a great deal of money. The amounts that people spend on gambling equals or exceeds the total amount given to religious organizations and or the total amount spent on elementary and secondary education in this nation. Two, legalized gambling handicaps a lot of people. The number of compulsive gamblers in the United States is today between 5 and 7% of the population of this nation. Gambling behavior is usually associated with poverty, marital strife, job loss, homelessness, and hunger. Those connections have been demonstrated again and again. Thirdly, legalized gambling victimizes vulnerable members of society, especially women, youth, and ethnic minorities. Fourth, state-sponsored gambling also seems to break down the resistance of people who would not otherwise gamble. Gambling addiction has risen precipitously since legalized gambling began over several decades ago. Finally, state-sponsored gambling has promoted materialism and the fantasy of a life of luxury without labor. And it's hard for me to see that as positive. Finally, I think it is very difficult, in fact, I would argue impossible, to fit gambling into a Christian worldview. There are several reasons. I'd like to actually list six. Gambling encourages the sin of greed and covetousness. Two, gambling promotes the mismanagement of possessions entrusted to us by God. It is not good stewardship. Thirdly, gambling undermines absolute dependence on God for his provision and fosters a dependence on ourselves and hitting odds that are impossible. It's not good stewardship. Fourth, gambling works at cross-purposes with a commitment to productive work. Fifth, gambling is potentially addictive, and again, we are seeing that on the rise in this nation. And finally, gambling threatens the welfare of our neighbor. In short, it is difficult to view gambling, either private or state-sponsored, as a positive. In my view, it is one of the most telling signs of a civilization in dysfunction and decline, one of the more discouraging aspects of our postmodern world. Hence, the evidence is in. Gambling is another factor contributing to cultural decadence. But it is pursued by individuals and the respective states that make up this union with greater vigor and greater passion. So therefore, in my judgment, there is perhaps no greater sign of cultural declension than that, the rise and popularity of gambling 
in both private practice as well as in state-sponsored gambling activities. It is very difficult for me as a leader, let alone as a Christian, to see gambling in all of its forms as a positive. In our second perspective on today's program, I want to think with you about human embryonic stem cell research. As we are taping this program, the courts have ruled again in a major way on stem cell research using human embryos, which gives every indication of seeing that particular option move forward in our culture. So I want to think with you about this. It's been a number of years since I reviewed this. I think it's important we do so again on issues in perspective. I'm on the advisory board of the Nebraska Coalition for Ethical Research, which opposes the derivation and use of stem cells from human embryos. Such derivation and use involves the direct destruction of a human being in its embryonic stage of development and treats such humans as mere physical objects that can be harvested for their parts. However, NSER, the National Nebraska Coalition for Ethical Research, supports and applauds the use of stem cells obtained from umbilical cord blood or adult sources that do not involve the destruction of the embryo of human life. Human embryonic stem cells are the master cells of the body. They have the capacity to produce the over 200 different specialized cells that make up the adult human body. There are two sources for human embryonic stem cells, human embryos created through in vitro fertilization and human embryos produced through cloning. Non-embryonic or adult sources of human stem cells include the placenta, umbilical cord blood, bone marrow, and a number of other tissues. A human embryo is created sexually when an egg is fertilized by a sperm or is produced asexually through cloning. An embryo begins as a single-cell zygote that starts to divide within hours after fertilization or with cloning after the fusion process. After about five days of development, the embryo is called a blastocyst and is comprised of two parts or two kinds of cells. One part is the outer sphere that becomes the placenta. Other tissues necessary to support the growth and development of the human embryo fetus throughout the pregnancy. Atrophoblast cells surround the second part, the body of the embryo, an inner mass of about 100 stem cells. The cells of the early embryo, probably about eight cell stage, are totipotent. That means, if separated from the embryo, can develop as a new and complete embryo. As the totipotent cells continue to divide, they differentiate and become more specialized cells called pluripotent stem cells. Unlike totipotent cells, pluripotent cells cannot produce a new or complete embryo, but they can only produce the very specialized cells and therefore specialized organs of the body. Researchers seek to obtain the approximately 100 pluripotent stem cells of the body of the embryo at the blastocyst stage. To do this, they must separate the body of the embryo from its shell or its covering, a process that kills the embryo. Human stem cells are important. They are important for a number of reasons. First, embryonic stem cells are responsible for the development of the human body 
during its embryonic and fetal stages. Second, adult stem cells maintain the health of the human body at each subsequent stage of life. For example, bone marrow stem cells continually replenish the body's blood supply. Some researchers want to use the pluripotent stem cells from the human embryo because these cells have the capacity to produce any of the specialized body cells and may be useful to treat or cure various diseases. However, their ability to do so has not yet been demonstrated convincingly in human beings. Human embryonic stem cell research, in my judgment and in the judgment of ENSER, is immoral and must be banned because it violates the life, dignity, and rights of a human being. Let me itemize some of these. This is part of a position paper produced by the Nebraska Coalition for Ethical Research. First of all, every human being has a right to life. The harvesting of human embryonic stem cells deliberately destroys, willfully, intentionally, embryonic human beings. Second, every human being has a right to be protected from discrimination. Human embryonic stem cell research discriminates against human embryos on the basis of developmental immaturity. Third, every human being is an end to be loved, not a means to be used for another's end. Human embryonic stem cell research treats the embryonic human being as an object to be valued for its parts. To categorize so-called spare embryos as having no future or going to be destroyed anyway is to rationalize destruction of one human being to possibly benefit the health of another. Fourth, every human being is of equal value to every other human being. Human embryonic stem cell research treats the embryonic human being as less valuable than a fetus, a neonate, or an adult. Human, next, human research involving subjects of the human race requires that proxy or presumed consent can be given only if the research does not harm the subject. But human embryonic stem cell research is by its very nature destructive. Therefore, proxy or presumed consent for such research is not ethically valid. That human embryo has not given permission to be killed, is another way of saying that. Next, the goal of research involving human subjects is to serve humanity by curing disease and relieving suffering. Human embryonic stem cell research destroys rather than heals human embryos. Any therapies developed from human embryonic stem cells are ill-gotten gains because the benefit to some human beings requires the death of others. Two more. The rules of ethical human research demand that scientists pursue the least morally controversial of available options when these prove to be equally beneficial. Most of the goals of human embryonic stem cell research can be obtained through the use of non-embryonic stem cells without any destruction of human life. And earlier in this perspective, I mentioned some of those options using umbilical cord blood, placenta, or adult stem cells. Finally, failure to protect embryonic and fetal human life, the most vulnerable of human beings, erodes the moral fiber of our society. 
Human embryonic stem cell research does not accord embryonic human beings the protection that is their due as human subjects of research. An assault against any innocent human being is an assault on humanity in general. Such respect for human life, including the human embryo, is a cornerstone of civilization, and human embryonic stem cell research will thereby weaken the moral and ethical foundation of our society. In my judgment, a civilization that pursues, in any wanton sense, human embryonic stem cell research is a civilization that's morally and ethically in decline. I do not think we need human embryonic stem cell research. Increasingly, more and more options are being presented, and more and more successes are being documented through adult stem cell research. We do not need to do human embryonic stem cell research. And study after study and effective result after effective result and success after success with adult stem cells shows that. This is a non-issue when it comes to ethics. And I believe it is time for our nation, it is time for our president, it is time for our Congress to face this and make human embryonic stem cell research in the United States of America illegal. We do not need to do it. And this particular perspective has laid out a case of why human embryonic stem cell research is ethically wrong and, in fact, not even needed. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the death of Osama bin Laden and its victory as echoes of George W. Bush. President Barack Obama invited President Bush to join him as he traveled to Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan last week. It really was a moving ceremony. But President Bush declined the offer. I do not know the reasons. I do not even have any sense of why. And I don't really want to comment on that. But in issuing this invitation, perhaps President Obama recognized how much he truly owes to President Bush. In fact, one could probably argue that President Bush's decisions right after 9-11 made the death of Osama bin Laden possible. Several thoughts. First of all, after 9-11, President Bush waged wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that forged a military so skilled that it carried out a complicated covert raid only with minor complications. And we know that as Navy SEALs who carried out this particular operation and other special ops forces in the United States military have honed and sharpened their skills that they were able to do this largely as a result of these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, I'm not saying in that sense the end justifies the means, but you cannot ignore that. Secondly, a detention and interrogation system constructed by the Bush administration, once condemned by President Obama, produced the intelligence that led the SEALs to Osama bin Laden. That is indisputable. Obama campaigned against the legal system adopted by the Bush administration to capture, detain, question, and try terrorist suspects, including those at the center of bin Laden's network. After pledging to close Guantanamo within a year of taking office, Obama has failed to do so. 
In fact, he altered rather than scrapped the Bush Military Commission system. We may never know exactly when and how all of the intelligence that led to bin Laden was gathered, but I suspect that the Bush administration's infrastructure yielded the most valuable information. Thirdly, we must never forget that the Bush War on Terror brought down the Taliban in Afghanistan, scattered and decimated al-Qaeda, and made bin Laden a fugitive. The bin Laden that he was killed, that he was even found in the first place, is a total vindication of the Bush War on Terror. Osama bin Laden is dead. Al-Qaeda is in disarray because of what we once knew as the war on terror. Perhaps it is time to reintroduce that phrase into our vocabulary as we talk about all that is happening in the world and in the United States. It does seem to me that it is still legitimate to speak of a war on terror. In this third perspective, I do not really want to make this a political statement. I do think that President Obama inviting President Bush to Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan was a way of acknowledging the contribution that President Bush made to the actual finding and killing of Osama bin Laden. And I think President Obama deserves tremendous credit As I've been reading this, I know without question he took enormous risks. It took great courage for him to give that final order to go into Pakistan where they believed that bin Laden was hiding and to carry out that absolutely remarkable action. But in saying that, the nation also needs to tip its hat to President George W. Bush. Without the series of decisions he made, without the series of decisions he made concerning the detention and interrogation system, we would not have received the information, the intelligence, the data we needed to find Osama bin Laden. And finally, I think it is extremely important simply to acknowledge that these almost 10 years since 9-11 have fundamentally changed the United States. It has changed almost every facet of our society, whether you're talking about air travel, whether you're talking about international travel, or whether you're talking about basic issues of security. It has certainly changed the military. And under President Bush, the nation was put on a totally different footing because of the war on terror. The present administration has stopped using that phrase, war on terror. I think that's a mistake. And I think perhaps it is time to reintroduce that phrase into our vocabulary. So as I close this perspective, while acknowledging the tremendous courage and ways in which President Obama carried out this operation as he ordered it, it is also important for us to tip our hat to President Bush. Thank you, President Bush, as well as President Obama. President Bush, you made what happened to Osama bin Laden possible. It shows, again, the continuity between these administrations in doing what needs to be done to destroy, defeat, and hopefully decimate 
that evil organization of Al-Qaeda. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.